Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me making my voice heard. This is you hearing my voice. How's it going out there? How are things? I hope you're doing well. My name's Brad Listy. Uh, as usual, I'm sitting here in the home office in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Uh, it's been a busy day so far. This morning early. Early in the day. Early in the morning. Uh, my daughter, who is three years old, took it upon herself to ask me very uh, two very important questions. The first one uh, was, what happens if fire gets on me? <laughs> what happens if fire gets on me? That's how she talks. And uh, the second question was, what happens when we die? So uh, that's how I started. <laughs> and obviously, you know, with a three-year-old, you're limited in terms of how you can respond to such things. And it sucks when your kid starts asking questions like this because you know that it's a sign that their blissful uh, innocence is beginning to recede. 
I mean, you know, it's still there right now, thankfully. But uh, if my daughter is anything like uh, me or my wife, it's not going to be there for long. <laughs> I feel like both my wife and I, we lost a, you know, I don't know. I just feel like we were jaded early or something. We have that in common. So uh, this actually isn't the first time that my daughter has asked me about death. Uh, it has happened uh, a few times recently. It's a trend. And uh, the first time that it happened that I can recall uh, was when I was giving her a bath. And, uh, you know, we were talking and then uh, the subject of my uh, old dog, Merlin, came up, who was no longer with us. And my daughter asked, uh, what happens when you die? And in that moment, uh, what did I do? Well, I sort of fumbled, you know, I fumbled my way through my usual explanation or whatever, the rehearsed explanation that I'd gone over in my head in the event of such a thing. Uh, and I said something to the effect of, you know, your body stops working and you sort of go to sleep. <laughs> and then from there, I tried to explain that, you know, there's, there's really no such thing as death. There's only continuation. You continue on in other forms. It's an illusion. But, you know, she's three. So after it was over with, and uh, I had I had put her to bed and read her stories and did all that stuff, you know, after all of that, I found myself uh, replaying the situation in my mind, kind of grading myself, grading my performance, and uh, imagining a darkly funny, uh, to me anyway, a darkly funny scenario that I then tweeted about after the fact. So uh, let me read these tweets to you so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about here. Uh, this is a, it's actually a series of tweets that amounts to one long explanation, one long imagined explanation to the question, what happens when we die? Last night, as I was giving her a bath, my three-year-old daughter asked me about my old dog Merlin, which then led, inevitably, to a conversation about death. For the first time ever, she asked me point-blank what death is. Without hesitating, I told her that I would explain it to her, but she would have to be absolutely quiet and ask no questions. From there, I turned off the light in the bathroom and pulled the drain in the tub and we both waited quietly as all of the water drained from the tub. And finally, when it was done after waiting for approximately 30 seconds in the pitch black darkness, I turned the light back on and said, Do you understand now? So there you go. Is that funny? <laughs> it, it really did seem funny to me at the time. Maybe it's one of those things that's funnier when you read it. Uh, I feel like that might have seemed a little bit uh, harsh. It wasn't meant to be harsh. It's just like, how do you answer that question to a three-year-old? How do you do a good job of that? And who knows? You know, maybe had I done that, it would have worked well. I mean, yeah, it seems a little bit too hardcore for a three-year-old. But, uh, you know, she's a pretty smart kid. 
Maybe she could have handled it. Maybe the metaphor would have registered. You know, the visual demonstration. Experiential learning. <laughs> so, uh, then this morning, you know, she asked again. So, clearly this is on her mind. And clearly, whatever answers I've given her up to this point, uh, well, they haven't been satisfactory. So, I think uh, what I'm going to do next, the next time she asks me what happens when we die, I'm going to go out, I'm going to get three candles... And I'm going to light two of them. And I'm going to say, uh, this is mommy on the left, and this is daddy on the right. And then uh, I'm going to bring the mommy flame and the daddy flame together to uh, to light my daughter's flame. And then uh, I'm going to blow my flame out. Are you following me here? <laughs> so uh, mommy flame, daddy flame. Bring them both together, light baby flame. And then blow out daddy flame and and right after I do that right after I blow out my flame I'm going to look at my daughter and I'm going to say where did I go and that'll be it it'll be like a zen moment I won't allow any further questions I won't extend the conversation another second I'll just leave the room well actually I'll blow out the candles first <laughs> And then I will drop them suddenly and triumphantly like a rock star dropping his microphone. And then I will walk away. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Jacinda Townsend. I had a really good time talking with her. She has a new novel out called Saint Monkey. It is available now from W.W. W. Norton and Company. So uh, here we go, folks. This is it. This is my conversation with Jacinda Townsend. And her new novel, once again, is called Saint Monkey. I am in Bloomington, Indiana, um, which is a really picturesque town. And I would call it South Central Indiana. And I am in my apartment, which is kind of in some ways a disastrous, but artistically disastrous mess. Okay. <laughs> Let me ask you about this. Are you, uh, a can you function with messes? Are you somebody, because I feel like there are people who uh, can do that. Like they can have messes all around them and they can be totally productive and the mess somehow makes sense to them. And then there are people like yeah. at the other end of the spectrum who like cannot work unless every everything is in its right place. Uh, like, uh, 
Yes, I, I am the former. In fact, it's really funny. Um, so, so most of the mess in my apartment, I have two kids who, for whatever reason, their lives also involve a lot of paper. So there's just stacks of paper and paper thrown everywhere. But it's really funny because whenever I think, oh, I need to find this permission slip. I, I know exactly which pile it's in, or if I need to find, you know, like next week I'll be doing my taxes. I, I know what pile that's in. I know exactly your, what messy you, pile it's in. Exactly. You've got your piles figured out. See, I read something, because I'm more of like an orderly, clean, or at least I aspire to be, you know. Um, <laughs> and I read something once that was uh, quietly devastating for me, and it was that people who – um, can live with the piles and know the piles and, and how they're organized and everything, uh, actually have uh, more like flexible, powerful minds than people like me. <laughs> well, that I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that, Brad. But, I think you but... should just take it and roll with it. That's encouraging most for you. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. I, I'll tell that to my kids, definitely. Yeah, and, I mean, you, yeah. Can, you can use this to be like, listen, do you realize how powerful my brain is that I can do this? <laughs> Right. So you woman. would say your your space is is neat and clean and not, and you have everything put away and yeah, but not like I mean it's a, not an exact science, you know. I, I, like again, it's aspirational. Like I like to talk a big game. Like I, I've talked on this show before, <laughs> but I've talked on this show many times about how like my ultimate dream is to live in one of those like extremely contemporary all glass houses with like polished concrete uh, floors and like no furn- uh-huh. no furniture in it at all, just an empty house where. Uh-huh. I just, but, uh-huh. you know, if you saw my actual house, because I have a young child, there's, you know, there's an easel and there's like way too many stuffed animals and there's like a spool of paper yeah. like rolled out on the floor. And, you know, when you have kids, yeah. you, can't, you can't really enforce um, the kind of, uh, you know, fascist ultra cleanliness that I'm, uh, I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's impossible. Children will destroy all your dreams yes, and, and then they'll give you new dreams. So, yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. Uh, you're in southern, in, you're in South Central Indiana. Uh, I grew. I, I was yes. ta- talking to you before we came on the air about my childhood in Indiana. How long have you been there for? This will be my third year here. I'm starting, which I can't believe. It feels like it's been 500, but it's only been two and a half. So it's a good. It's town. a really, it's a lovely town. It's a great town. There's a big music scene here, which is um, big for me. So yeah. Well, you're into music. Yeah. Oh, I love music. I I like all kinds of music. The scene here, um, well, no, actually, that's not true. There's a there's an all kinds of music scene here, but of course, the Jacob School is here, so there's a huge classical music uh, vibe that goes on in this town, which is really nice. I like as well. So wait, so and are, it, it, are you musical? Sorry, your, are you musical yourself? Are you uh, like? A, can you sing? Well. Can you play? One of the things I have in my big messy house is um, I have a 1949 Acrosonic piano, which is um, it's it was top of the line for Baldwin at that time, and um, I I bought it I play I really bought it for my kids, but neither one of them will play. So one day it reverts back to me, and I'll play. Okay, cause I, <laughs> well this is good to know because like I grew up in a house like my parents didn't even have a stereo. It was like footloose. Uh-huh. I mean, it wasn't like they, they it wasn't like they were anti music, but there was just no music. Like they weren't. Right, they, right. They, they didn't have a record collection. They never went through that phase in their lives. They never like really fell in love with music in the way that wow. I did. Yeah. So, uh, but my great. What kind of music? For me. 
Yeah, what kind of music do you like? Oh, I mean, you know, it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint. I think especially these days because the way that we listen to music uh, cha- has changed so much since I was a kid. You mm. know? Back in the day, like mm. I used to, when I was like up until I was like twenty, I had like cassette tapes, and I had hundreds <laughs> of them. And I used to like, I used to like listen to full albums and deliver pizzas and drive around listening to music and I would make mixtapes and do all that. And now I just like, I, I tend to buy track by track or I'll go, I don't know. It seems messier. It seems less concentrated than it used to be, which might just be a function of my life. But, um, I like everything, every classical jazz, rock, you know, hip hop, any, mm-hmm. anything and whatever sounds good, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but you, you know, saying that you have the piano in your house and that your kids still won't play. Like I have always had this fantasy that like, I'm going to have a music room in my house. I'm going to put it there so that my children grow up playing. Um, they can fulfill. They can fulfill some sort of, uh, you know, unf- unfulfilled yes. rock star fantasy that I never got to actualize. Exactly. <laughs> but they're not. Exactly. But they're not playing. They want nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with that. They play at gunpoint. One of them plays cello, and the other plays violin. So I managed to. I managed to convince them that they were rebelling against me ah. by not playing the piano and having them play other things. See, that's what I'm going <laughs> to so get. That's, that's a good idea. I'm going to get like a French horn and put it in like a room <laughs> and then be like, fine, if you don't want this, here's an electric guitar, you know, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Ah. So what were you saying about your great grandfather? Oh, he was a professional piano player. That was his deal. He was a uh, so, I mean, we got it in my family. It's somewhere in there. But, uh, you know, he they, my ancestors are from Louisiana. So he played piano professionally. And, like, it skipped generations. And, like, I have this, uh-huh. I, you know, it, it, I have no idea if I could play because I never actually sat down to try. But I have this theory that because I wound up writerly that somehow he's in there somewhere. And then that, right? there's, there's something. Right? I like to believe that there's something musical. It, it's just too depressing to think that there's nothing musical in my bloodline at all you know like it would just be right it seems like such a gift to be able to sing and play an instrument uh, it seems like the ultimate definitely yeah so that's cool that you can definitely uh, like you can sit down at a piano and just play for a while i can i i'm a little rusty on reading music but um but i i can still play so yeah i mean and it's interesting what you said about it skipping generations and i i read once that Almost all successful musicians, or many really successful musicians, are third-generation musicians, like exactly third, not second, not 2.5, but they're third-generation musicians. So, like, I think Yo-Yo Ma is an example. Um, So it it takes, you know, my kids, I mean, bless their hearts, they're going to have to go one step further, you know, Um, but, but it's interesting that you say, you know, it skipped you with your great grandfather, but now I think that means you have to start again. Like you have to do something (laughs) and then your grandchildren will be (laughs) (laughs) be a steep climb. I just, you know, there's not an ounce of vocal talent. I wish I could sing. God, life would be so much easier. I would have had so many more girlfriends in high school if I could have done this. Uh, so, okay. So where are you from? You're from Kentucky, correct? I am from Kentucky. I'm from South Central Kentucky, actually. Um, about four hours south of here. Um, so I, and I mean, oddly enough, it's not that 
similar to here. In some ways it is, but in, in many ways culturally it is not. What's the difference? Um, well, I think Kentucky is is a farmer insular place. Um, not too many people come and not too many people go. Um, I think it is a place that is far more... Um, far more sort of clannish in the family clan way, you know, and I think there was, there was actually a, like a historical reason for that, which is that when people first came over here and settled this area, um, you know, the, the people who were from Wales and Scotland kind of, they collected themselves in Virgi- in West Virginia and Kentucky, and they just kind of settled in these hills and, and kept their clans together, literally, you know? Yeah. Whereas I think Indiana is a much more kind of like westward expansion sort of state. So People passing, yeah. through, like people passing through Indiana on the way to yeah. Lewis or something. <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll tell you what, though. I grew up in Indiana part of my childhood, and I used to – I remember like – Knowing some people from Kentucky, especially when like friends of mine got into college and went to IU and there were some people who crossed the state line to go to IU and people from Kentucky are hardcore. Like I remember like they're, they're the kind of guys like there were a couple guys from Kentucky who would like just get like so drunk and like have a fist fight for like fun and then wake up the next day and it was like fine. I was, you know, But like a real fist fight, you know, not like play like it looked like it hurt. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and I kind of had a, I had a similar experience with friends of mine from Kansas City, which I also see that seemed to breed like a particularly crazy, and not not necessarily in a bad way, you know, just kind of like a uh-huh. there, there's just a wild there's something wild about yes. Kentucky. I feel like yes, yes, there there is there is. I remember you know I would come back on the bus from uh, I went to college in Boston, and sort of the further west the bus went. You know, the wilder the the people would be on the bus, and and when the people the people who got kicked off the Greyhound bus, and I don't know if you've ever witnessed this, but it's always hilarious when someone has done something that wrong. You know, they were always we were south of Pennsylvania. Always, always, it was those people who got kicked off the Greyhound. Bus. What do you What do you have to do to get kicked off a Greyhound bus? You you could smoke. Once I was on a bus and this man had a hatchet in his backpack. And I, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. Like, he really expected to ride three hours with a hatchet in his backpack. And the driver's like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Either get off the bus or put it underneath. And he didn't want to put it underneath. So, oh, for God's what was sake. he up to? Yeah, I know. I'm not. So, I know. You're not going to sleep. You're not going to sleep a wink if you're sitting next to the guy with the hatchet. <laughs> exactly. Head on a swivel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, okay, so t- let's talk about growing up in South Central Kentucky. What was the name of the your hometown? Where are you from? Uh, I grew up in Bowling Green, which is the home of the Corvette plant and Western Kentucky University. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's not the not the mountainous part of Kentucky, but the hilly part. Um, so the western's mascot is the hilltopper. Right. Um, and it's a beautiful place. I I really I love to go back. In fact, I'm spending my sabbatical there. So um, it's just a really was a great place to grow up. Just like uh, like I don't know, wide open spaces. Did you have like an outdoorsy upbringing? Yeah, very much so. When I grew up, actually, um, when I was a kid, the Corvette plant wasn't there yet. So I spent a lot of time. I I remember I went to this, there was this wide open field, 
and and I would just like lie there and like watch the planes go by. You know, and this was before uh, the traffic became to you know an insurmountable burden, and and there was noise pollution. But it was just beautiful grass, woods. You know, great stuff. Oh man! So and so, what did, what did your folks do? Were like, do you come from uh, artistic people? Not at all. My mother is a high school teacher, although she's an English teacher, so that's maybe where the literary stuff came from. But my dad is actually a business executive, um, or he was, at General Electric. So um, not not artsy in the least. I don't think they understand at all what happened. Um, <laughs> they they're still they're still reeling in shock. They're still trying to exactly. Like... <laughs> they really are. They really are. And I was, you know, it, it was interesting. I don't think they really until my book came out. I like literally. I don't think they understood what I did all day. You know, um, I think they thought I just kind of sat here and. I don't know, certainly not clean the house, but whatever they imagined I was doing. You know, I hear that over and over again from people that I talk with for this show is that people, people just have people who are not writers or who don't, who haven't really, I guess, spent time thinking about it or talking to people who do it or whatever it is. They have a hard time understanding the the life. You, you, you got to produce mm-hmm. it. I guess you got to just show them books. And even right? then, even then it can sometimes be hard to get taken seriously. Like until... Yeah, I don't know what has to happen. You know, whether it's book sales or like you're on you're on television. I, th- I think you have to be on television, right. or the book has to be turned into a movie, and then then things get real. Then, <laughs> then people will know you're human. Yes. yes. No, is your kid is your kid artistic at all, or is he going to be like a Republican or she? Uh, it, it's it's actually a little yeah, it's a little girl. I I don't oh. know. I think she's going to be funny. Uh, oh. She's wordy, you know. She's she's really verbal for her age, you know. I think uh-huh. she would have to be uh-huh. with, with her parent. I mean, she's not going to be a mathematician with her bloodlines. You know? <laughs> like neither my wife or I um, are going to be, you know, handing down any great like scientific genes or whatever. But um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, it's hard to say. I, I tend to think like I have this thing that like you know I want her to have a sense of humor because I think you need that in life, uh, and I think that's like. I don't know. I'm hope. I hope I know how to teach her that. But it, I, I don't know if she'll be artistic. She loves to draw. She loves to read. Um, but she's only three. You know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. As as to her politics, like I'll have to sit her down and ask her tonight. I have no idea. <laughs> like I, I hope I hope she's open. Well, I hope she's open minded. Yes, I think you can tell by how she shares things on the playground, right? Yeah, she's pretty. I mean, Whether she's she's not she's not too possessive i mean like there's certain stuffed animals uh-huh. there's certain stuffed animals that she has like an emotional attachment to um there's a chicken there's a little chicken called chicky that um you know i think if, if you try to take it from her she's gonna she's gonna shiv you, you know? <laughs> like, but other things you know candy food uh, other animals you know i think she's pretty generous uh-huh. so we'll see uh-huh. but oh, cool. um so did you grow up with uh siblings in in kentucky were you an only or um, I have a, a sister who is nine and a half years younger than me, so I was an only child for a long, long time, but she's uh, now, you know, 10 years younger than me, which is, you know, 19, because I'm 29, <laughs> and she lives, she lives in D.C., um, and she's an animal rights attorney, so... 
she's probably even more confounding to my parents than I am. <laughs> well, so, but let, let me ask, do you have like a, I mean, I know nine and a half years, like there's probably a long spell of your childhood and adolescence and you're going away to college where like you don't know your sibling all that well. Like, have you been, have you guys had, um, uh, been able to like get to know one another with that much of an age gap? Um, well, oh, that's a, a really good question. Um, I feel like there was a point because I was, and I went to college a little early. So when I went to college, I was 16 and she was six. There was a point though, when I came back home from the summer where we became close and we became close enough to actually have some knockdown drag out fights, believe it or not. Um, And, and I think, you know, I I think at that point we did, um, unfortunately, I think there's also, I, I think we're close but I think when when there's that much of an age difference between kids, sometimes there's this mom thing that happens. You know, I'm not I'm your sister, but when you're you know 11, 12, 13 years old, I'm kind of old enough to be your guardian, and sometimes I have to be. And and I think you know those are some years of of tension when there's that much of an age difference because um, I wasn't her mother. I just thought I was, you know. Right. So. If you asked her, I think you'd get a, a really different, different story. I'm gonna have to get. I'll, I'll get her on the line. I'll get her on the line after I'm done talking with you. So, uh, when did you start to show as a writer? Like, were you when you were a young kid? I mean, you, you said you went off to college um, at age 16. Like, were you, you good student, uh, advanced, like skipping grades kind of thing? Um, I I skipped grades when I was really little, and then. Um, you know, I, I can't say I was ever this great student because until I started seriously writing, I didn't really know what interested me. I had no clue. I went to college. I majored in poli-sci. I took one, wait, wait, one wait. creative writing. Where, where, I'm sorry? Where did you go to school when you were 16? I, I went to Harvard, and I thought that I was going to be a politician. So I majored in poli-sci, and I wasn't really that happy. Um, I was one of the worst students who ever went to Harvard. Wait, um, like, I went to- how, did, how did you get in? Like, you're 16 years old, and, like, you're gradua- <laughs> you've graduated high school. So yes, it's not. I was sixteen. Yeah. Okay, so then you just I guess that was just you just decided Harvard's one on on my list, and I'm going to apply. I did. I wanted to go. Um, I was a lot like I was. I wouldn't say my novel's autobiographical, but I was a lot like these girls in the sense that I just had to leave home, and it had to be as far away as possible. So I applied to colleges around there, but I I wasn't serious. I mean, my parents had no clue how serious I wasn't about that, you know. Um, Everywhere I was serious about was at least 600 miles away. (laughs) So what was it? What was it? Was it like, I, you know, I just need to strike out on my own, see some new stuff? Or was there, was, was there unhappiness, like adolescent unhappiness driving it? I think I felt very overprotected, um, and I think I was an, an, an incredibly overprotected child, you know, um, and perhaps in part because I was graduating so early, I felt like if I didn't if I didn't make this a big, big, big move, I was going to pay for it in some in in that sense of you know. I would still be susceptible to this overprotection, um, so I knew it had to be a big break, right? Do it big. Do it big. And did then, you did you go away? Yeah, far? I did. Yeah, I had. To, I mean, I almost went to Indiana. Like I was signed up. I had my name on the door, and I made a last minute decision. 
Like it suddenly occurred to me, like I don't want to, because I, I basically would have been redoing high school, you know, like that was mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. went everybody went to IU, and at the last minute I was like, no, I'm going to go to Colorado, and I went off to Boulder. Right, um, nice. Which you know, you, a beautiful place. Beautiful, beautiful. I didn't do much, you know, I didn't do much studying, but it was uh, it was a, it was a fun four years, and uh, just a great great town to live in, and just like uh, mm-hmm. gave me like an appreciation for the outdoors that I probably would not have had otherwise. I met. You know, mm-hmm. a ton of people that mm-hmm. I, you know, it's a big decision where you go. And, you know, yeah. s- suddenly you're on, uh, you're at Harvard and you're on this campus, you're 16 years old. Like, did that age mm-hmm. difference being a freshman, like, cause two years makes a big difference at that age, you know, uh, right, the, difference, right, the, difference, right. the difference between 29 and 31, nothing, but the difference between 16 right. and 18, I'm sure you kind of felt. You know, it, I, only in retrospect, I think at the time, because I because I had done the skipping so early, I felt like socially I was their age. And then when I, I think back, you know, I was in this freshman seminar, and my professor had no idea how old I was, and he was making me white Russians that he had us over to his house, and I think, my goodness, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't imagine one of my kids at 16 going to this guy's house and he's making them like hard liquor drinks, you know? Um, but, but yeah, so I mean, in retrospect, I can't believe I did it. But at the time now I felt like, you know, go away, young lady, go North. Um, what did your parents, what did your parents say? When you get into Harvard, were they just like, Holy cow. And then was there any, like, I guess they must've been, but you know, when your kid gets into Harvard, it's pretty hard to say, don't go. Right, right. Because I think had it been anywhere else, they would have somehow found a way to say don't go. Um, and I applied, you know, I got into Emory and they were kind of like, oh, that's kind of far. But no, this is Harvard. So they they were, I mean, I think they were, um, there's probably a long German word for the emotion they had because <laughs> I think they were so pleased and yet so horrified, you know. And uh, they they tried to be overprotective from a long, long distance, which was really funny, you know, because they would call. They they had explicitly told me that I was not to go on the subway, that I was not to leave Harvard Square. Um, you know, I was not to do this and that. If I had a hair appointment, I was supposed to call them. And, um, I mean, I did none of that, you know. Right. But they would call and ask me, oh, you haven't been on the subway. No, I haven't been on the subway. <laughs> I would never go on the subway. What was, what was the – What was because the, the subway, it's, it's, it's like the nicest public transportation ever. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I don't know. I don't know. They had some fear. Yeah. Some public transportation fear. Where is that thing going to take her? What part of town is she going to wind up in? So, and, so you, and, you yeah. wanted, and you wanted to be a politician. I did. And then I figured out that I figured out that most politicians don't actually care about people. They care about being a politician. And and now I think I'm an I'm an activist in a much more quiet and meaningful way. Um, you know the things that I care about, I truly truly care about, and it has nothing to do with any egotistical part of me. I mean, I I care to see things change. You know, I care to see the world become a better place. Um, so and I don't think you need that power to do that. Okay. So so what? caused you to have this epiphany like when you're majoring in poli sci and you're at harvard um did you do an internship did you um 
did you clerk or something? I did. You see, you saw. I did, although it wasn't that. I, I, I interned with this alderman, and he was wonderful. He was a wonderfully caring guy because that was his, his other job. You know, he, he wasn't in it for the ego. He wasn't a career politician. But I, I think just being around other 18-year-old people who had this egotistical desire to go into politics made me realize that in in – you know, for most people, that is a purely egotistical desire. I mean, you don't need power to affect change, right. you know? Um, and, and so, yeah, it was a turnoff. You must have seen, I mean, especially like 18-year-olds at Harvard, like these hyper-ambitious young... Uh, you, must have seen uh, some, you must have seen some stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, our, our, everybody on our undergraduate council, I think, went to law school and, you know, went to politics. And, yeah, so... It's, it's, and I, you know, I know some people who I knew then who are, in fact, politicians, and they seem to me to be very morally thin, actually. Um, like, like even who? less so than they were. Oh, do you really want me to name? Are they, are they in Washington? <laughs> are they public figures? Yeah, yeah, yes. One of them is um, a congressman. I think he, this poor guy, he lost an election recently. Um, I'm going to decline to say his name. He's from a southern state. And he has always been very morally thin, um, and he will—he is the kind of politician who will take money from any anybody, you know. Um, which is to yeah. say, which is to say, he's a normal politician. <laughs> we exactly, exactly, so, exactly. So okay, so and then you say now you're you are an activist, but in a quieter and more meaningful way. So like, what are your? Yeah. Do you have pet causes or things that you're really involved in? Yes, I think one of the one of the most important causes um, of our time really is is sort of the the issue of the prison industrial complex. And um, one thing that I that that really concerns me, especially now that I'm a parent, is this idea that when people become incarcerated. Their children are often just effectively orphaned. They're either effectively orphaned or they they effectively lose a parent, sometimes for life. Sometimes it's as though this parent has died. Uh, and there's really, there's really, you know, a lot of these people are being sent away for nonviolent offenses. Um, they, re- they have to return because our parole system is so screwed up. It's almost impossible to out um, once you are a paroled um, felon. So, you know, the, this, and, and also um, I'm, I'm, I've become really squeamish about the ways in which we disempower people once they are convicted of a crime. Um, you know, in some ways you're disempowered for life. You can't vote. You can barely get a job. Um, you know what I mean? And so, so that's that's an issue that's near and dear to me. Well, how did you get? How did how did that become something you were uh, focused on? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think when I was in law school and I studied a lot of the you know disparities in sentencing or whatever, that that just kind of triggered something in me. Um, disparity, you know, disparity is something that really upsets me, like injustice of that type. Um, so you know the 100 to one cocaine crack sentencing that that that's egregious to me that 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 is that stood for so long before those Rockefeller laws got repealed. Wait, what? What were those? Um, what were those? These were the laws that that for among other things they made crack 
a much, or, or I'm sorry, crack possession faces a much longer sentence than cocaine possession. And in general, um, you know, people like meals, even the people who carry drugs and didn't even know they were carrying drugs, they're getting sent away for life under these laws. Um, and so, of course, you know, we've created this permanent underclass of people. Um, they are people who return and then we milk them for, you know, they get paid in prison 32 cents an hour to do work that on the outside they would be getting paid $10 an hour, $15 an hour to do. So it's basically modern day, you know, slavery, indentured servantry of the under, of this underclass that we've created. Um, so that's, that's my big pet cause nowadays. Wow. So what do you do? Like you just you follow it, you advocate for it. Like, uh, like, how do, like I'm always inter- I'm interested in activism and like how, you know, you have these things and I, I mean, I'll, I'll admit to this. Like I have these things that I care about and I'll have things that really bother me. Um, but then I, I feel like I'm sometimes come, sh- you know, come up short in terms of what I actually do to try to affect change. <laughs> you know, so how do like what do you do? Yeah. I do, I do too. I mean, you know, I, I say all this and I've talked this big game, but the truth is I have two kids and I'm a single mother too. So I, I feel like since I've had kids, I'm much more of a net activist than anything else. I have big dreams of, um, you know, I, I have huge dreams. I, I, when I, one thing I would love, love, love to do is to start a program for children of prisoners. Um, you know, and I, I haven't thought far enough to think like what form that would take. But for now, when my kids are so little, I just I do a lot of stuff. I write letters on the internet constantly. You know, I'm always um, whatever these petitions like from Color for Change and and places like that I sign. Um, but it, it is it's always burning in my mind that it's something I really want to do something about. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I have those things too, where it's like I want to do this. I want to help this. What's your thing? Oh, I mean, it's there's all sorts of things. I mean, I think about uh, the climate a lot, especially lately. Mm-hmm. Like, like there's got to mm-hmm. be a way to like. I feel like this is just like a the big disaster, a uh, big mm-hmm. issue of mm-hmm. our time. I mean, it's going to affect everybody, yeah. and I feel like especially as a parent. You know, to be sitting on your hands or to be not doing something is to like hand your children or your grandchildren like a world that, you know, yeah. and, and it may be an ev- I mean, who knows, you know, like, but I got to at least try. Like, I don't want to, I don't want my, mm-hmm. I don't want my descendants to look back and be like, what an asshole. You know, he did nothing. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> um, definitely. It, so that's like something. And I think in the way that I live, you know, I, I'm definitely trying to live in a way that's um, mindful of that, you know, in terms of how to consume. Uh-huh. It take, it'll take more, you know. You have to kind of make some noise, I think, in order to get politicians to, you know, they have to be, they have to fear yeah. for, the, they have to fear for their jobs, you know, or their, exactly, their exactly. Money. So, yeah. uh, you're at Harvard. You're a poli sci major. You decide that politics is not for you. Did you switch majors? Mm-hmm. No, I, I still didn't know. I, I didn't know. I didn't know I was going to write, Brad, for a long time. So I went to law school right after college, which was just the dumbest move ever anyone ever made. Where'd you go? Um, I went to Duke in North Carolina and I went down there and I was just absolutely miserable. Like it was kind of like having 
rectal piles at Disney World. It was horrible <laughs> because, you know, North Carolina is so beautiful. And it was so, I mean, after living in Boston for four years, it was like I would, it was the middle of winter. I didn't have to wear a coat. And I was so, you know, but I, I was just so miserable in the middle of all this beauty. So what, what, um, miser- while I'm miserable because of the law school, like it wasn't the school. Yes, itself. exactly. Exactly. Just, just, yeah. And well, and the school is a little bit more conservative than I had dreamed it would be so there was that too and um i was so i I was really miserable i cross-registered in the english department while i was there and that was kind of sort of magical um i cross-registered again and again i ended up taking the maximum numbers of classes you could you could cross-register for and then all the stories i wrote got published so I still didn't know. I still didn't know, but I had started to have an inkling. So then, four years later, I was in New York, and I was living with. Uh, I was living with. I don't know if you've heard of Florencia Lozano. Have you ever heard of her? No. No, she is a she's a soap actress, which is maybe why you have it. She's uh, Taya Delgado on One Life to Live, okay. and. I was living with her before she was anybody, before she was even in an Olive Garden commercial, and she was doing an MA in acting at NYU. And I thought, my word, you know, like I don't have to, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to be a temp attorney anymore. Like I can like actually go to school for art. So that's what I did, and I mean, it was just magical. It was just I couldn't believe that this wasn't my idea my whole life. So, so, okay, so when you're at Duke and you're in law school and you're sort of like maxing out on English classes on the side, um, Mm -hmm. you mentioned briefly that you were writing stories at this time. Yes. And they were, and they were, then they were getting published. You were getting yeses right away on the stuff that you were getting. Yes. Yes. I couldn't believe it. So who was just like small journals and stuff like that? Exactly. I started out in literary journals, you know, some really, really beautiful journals, um, and then I stopped writing short stories. I think when I did my MFA, I figured out that everything I wrote needed to be longer. <laughs> in order to in order to actually make any money at it or to sell these books. Well, that and just I wasn't telling I wasn't telling short stories. They would go to workshop and then people would be like, "This is not this. This is a longer thing. It wants to be a longer thing." So I just stopped writing them. Right. Right. <laughs> So you're in New York. You had been working a little bit as an attorney, and then you go off to get your MFA. Uh huh. Uh-huh. At, at Iowa, is that right? At Iowa. Uh-huh. Okay. The, the the famous Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah. So you are a you are you're a well educated woman. You've hit every. I mean, like a Harvard undergrad, Duke Law School, Iowa Writers Workshop. <laughs> That's in, that's in, I, I, I'm that's, an overeducated woman. Yes, and and, and not only not only that, but you had all of these things by the time you were like 22, right? You know, like, right. My God. So, what was Iowa like? Was Iowa like your mecca? Did you just finally find your tribe and think to my, you know, think to yourself? I did. I did. I did. Um, it was just, you know, and especially after after doing the wrong thing in life for all those years. Um, it was, I mean, when I say magical, I'm not exaggerating. It, it was literally like, I, it, it was almost, it was a sort of birth for me um, because suddenly I had a purpose in life and I had a, 
I kind of, there was no more mismatch between what I was doing and what I needed to do and what I wanted to do. Like I, I hit up on this thing that I really wanted to do and that I could do. I was good at it. I was decent at it anyway. I, I was good at it and I wanted to keep doing it, you know? And so then after that, um, I, I was worried because I thought, after the two years in Iowa, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And it looked very much like I was going to have to go back to New York and do the temp attorney thing again, which, you know, is just like, ugh. but I got a Fulbright to Africa and, um, that was a year. And then the next year I got a fellowship to Wisconsin and that was a year. And then I got a teaching job. And so, you know, these these really stro- big strokes of luck kept happening to me. And so I've been lucky to be able to stay in this game. Yeah. Really lucky. Okay, so you got a Fulbright to Africa? I did. What I the- did. I was in Cote d'Ivoire. Okay, so what was that? What did you do? What is a Fulbright in Africa? What do you do as a Fulbright? You just go there? <laughs> like, what do you? They don't do anything, Brad. They don't do anything. They claim they're going to do all this stuff. Um, and somebody told me before I went, she said, if you actually write that novel, you'll be the first Fulbrighter ever to do something like <laughs> It's like, but you know, this makes sense to me because it's almost too good. It's like, you know, you're a Fulbright scholar. Yes. They bankroll you. They send you somewhere, you know, far flung. <laughs> it's got this, it's too ideal. You almost need more, you need more conflict and stress in your life in order to, to create exactly. art. Exactly, exactly. So what were you doing over there? Were you just hanging out and uh like talk- I hung out I actually I actually wrote quite a bit, but what what I wrote I think reflected the fact that it was the first time I'd ever lived abroad and um it was the first time I'd ever been to Africa and so I was just you know, I was just goo the whole time. It was like a Martian coming to Kansas. I mean, it it was you know, it was amazing in all these wonderful ways. Um, I don't think Cote d'Ivoire was a great country for me. Um, Why? It was, it was just coming out of Civil War, and actually after I left, it went right back into Civil War. There was a lot of xenophobia. Um, without you, was without really you there, without you there to hold it together, the country sank right back into Civil War. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and But I, what I did do was I ended up, I traveled a lot. I went to Mali, which is like one of my favorite places on earth. I went to Ghana. And at the end of it, what I did was I took advantage of the fact that the cheapest route was through Morocco. I ended up in Morocco, and that is where I have been back about five times now. My, my next novel is actually set partially in Morocco. Um, so it did turn out, it didn't turn out to be a complete bankrolled empty year. So it was, what yeah. about, what about Morocco? Like why was Morocco such a hit? Uh, Morocco is where, so, so, you know, you go to Morocco and you go, you're sitting there in this, this tea place, you know that there are rules, right? That you're going to, you're going to get three rounds of tea you're going to have to say, you know, inshallah, you're going to have to conform to these sort of like rules of, of etiquette. But at the same time, there's this psychedelic undertone um, to Morocco. I mean, there are all these cultures meeting up, you know, the French, the Amizag, the Berber, the Arab. Um, and there's this kind of uh, the art, there's a psychedelic quality to the art 
um, you know, it, it's a it's a place where lots of lots of forces meet up, lots of cultures meet up, lots of kind of auras meet up, um, and it's really it's just mind blowing. I mean, every time I go over there. I feel like I come back and, and life has just switched from technicolor to like black and white again. Um, it's just, it's a really electric place. Um, so I saw it for the first time. I went to Marrakesh actually, and I saw the famous Jema uh, El Shna, which has, it's been there for a thousand years. These people are telling stories. They're doing acrobatics um, at Wait, night. What, what they, is this? What is it called? It's called the Jema El Sna, and it's a square in the center of Marrakesh, and they just, I mean, it's its live performance, and it's been a nonstop performance for a thousand years, literally. Um, and I saw that, and I said, I'm, I'm going to keep coming back here and coming back here, and that's what I do. You bring your kids? Um, you bring your daughters? I have. They've been twice. One of them's been twice. The little one's been once, and they are horrified at, you know, because there's no sugary cereal and there's no hot water sometimes. Um, but when they, when we get back, like when we're on the plane, they're like crying, you know, when are we going to go back? Wow. <laughs> so I think we're going to go back this summer, inshallah, as they say, we will go back this summer. Wow. Okay. So, so this place had a, this place really got its hooks into you. Oh, I would love to live there. It's amazing, Brett. Have you been? Have you no. been to Morocco? No, I've never been. Oh, never you been. have to go. Okay. You have to go, and you have to take your kid. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. I'll have to do. That. I feel like yeah. travel. I feel like taking your like. Just I like the idea that like you know you have young children, but it's like and people always say oh it's hell to travel with kids, but I think you got to just pack them up and go. You can't let that stop you. Yes. Yes. Have you have you been on any long trips yet with her? Yeah, I mean, we've we took her to New York. We've taken her on, uh, you know, on several trips within the states, but we haven't taken her abroad yet. Um, but mm-hmm. it's on it's on my list. I think those are powerful experiences for people generally, but especially for young people, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, maybe we'll yeah. st- we'll do like a starter trip, and then we'll work our way up to like Morocco. We'll drop her in the middle of the uh, what's it called? The Inshallah. What is it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll work we'll work our way up to that. And uh, try to drop that on her when she's about five. Um, so, okay, so you have this, like, I mean, that's a big year, though. And, and when you get a Fulbright, um, if you don't mind me asking, like, how much money do you get? They give you, like, a monthly? Like, do you get, like, a stipend? Does it co- oh, you, yeah, you get it in four parts, and it's it's a shameful amount of money. Um, it's, ca- like, you get money according to where you are. What I got to live in West Africa, I got, um, it was something like $30,000 a year, and this was in 2001. So to have that there is kind of like being the CEO of, you know, Best Buy. I mean, it was like... You were loaded. Shameful, exactly. I mean, it was a shameful amount of money. I used most of mine to travel, actually, but I would have to go, you know, like I went to Mali and I knew that I there was there was there was at that time there was like one ATM in the capital city, so I would have you know thousands and thousands of dollars in their currency, French FIFA. I would have pins in my shirt. I mean, it was <laughs> crazy. you were like you were like Tony Montana. You just had wads of cash. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Exactly. So and what and it okay, where do they where do they put you up? You have an apartment? Do you have any? choice or do they just like have like a lavish Fulbright apartment waiting for you like what's the 
No, they. What usually happens is people who people who've had it before keep passing their apartment down. So we were at first. I was rooming with a fellow Fulbrighter in a in a house actually in a nice suburb of the capital city, and then um, we kind of had it out. Um, there was some, interestingly enough, there was some cross cultural misunderstanding between us about the cross-cultural understandings we felt we were having about Africa. Um, so I moved. I moved to the beach. I moved to the um, a city far, far away from the capital city. Um, and I lived at the beach for a year. And, you know, you, you would think that that would be marvelous. And it was profoundly, profoundly depressing. Um, I would go to bed and hear these waves. And I would wake up and hear these waves. I would hear these waves all night. I would hear these waves all day. And, you know, there's something horrifying about the idea of infinity, really. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, really, what you want is for everything to end. You want it to end in neat fours or sixteens, right? Like, I I, I found it just profoundly depressing. Um, just the, and I the ocean. Just the ocean. Oh, my gosh. After a while, I couldn't even, like, walk to the beach anymore. I just couldn't stand it, you know? I think some places, I, I think some places like, it's better to have them be, like, where you go visit than it is to actually live. Right. Because then, yeah. because what happens is that, like, I, th- I found this with, like, ski towns when I lived in Colorado, is that you have these, like, beautiful ski towns, and you go to them for, like, a long weekend, and you're like, I got to live here. This is perfect. You can ski. <laughs> it's beautiful. But then you get up there, and then there's nothing more depressing than being depressed in a, in paradise. You know, right, like right, oh shit, you can right. you mean I can do this anywhere? You know, like I can feel this bad anywhere. Right. I, I need. But this. I imagine L.A. is is, a, is such a place. Well, no, but there's enough chaos in L.A. to temper the paradisical aspects of it. You know, like yes, it's always sunny. Yes, there's the ocean, but like the sky's brown and there's traffic and there's chaos everywhere. I mean like I and I also don't live on the beach. You know, I have to drive to the uh-huh. beach, which is a bit of a trip. So even like the city is so big that like you go you know, you go to the beach and it's like a day. It's a thing. It's a it's a journey, you know? Uh it's not uh-huh. it's not like I just uh-huh. I don't like roll out of bed and stumble into it. I think if uh you know if you live in Malibu or something and you're fortunate enough to have like one of those houses on the water, maybe that would that would be the you know, you'd have like a similar experience to the one you had in uh Cote d'Ivoire. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, mm-hmm. I, and I want to ask you, too, uh, you, you know, you sort of briefly alluded to this conflict that you had with your fellow Fulbrighter. Um, mm-hmm. But that's interesting because you go to a place that's like, you know, a huge culturally um, – there's a huge cultural difference from what you have at home in the States and suddenly you're in Africa, uh-huh. you know. And then uh-huh. you show up with like these ideas uh, about the place or about what your role uh-huh. is there. Like what was the – can you talk a little bit more about, conflict about that? Yeah. Yeah, that, that person I will totally, totally read out. Um, so this, this young woman, she was, she was a little bit younger than me, um, very idealistic. She, she, was, she had just graduated college. So she comes and she told everybody that she had lived in Senegal for a year. And then her boyfriend came and visited her and he told us all it was actually three months. <laughs> and then even uh, that became questionable, right? right? But she, you know, she was the authority on all of Africa. Um, and so we had, we we got this made over my objections. We got this made because 
according to her, we needed to contribute to the local economy by hiring this maid. We didn't need a maid, <laughs> you know, didn't need a maid at all. See, wait, 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 so wait, wait, had... wait, wait, wait. You're like, I, I have control of my piles. She needed to see this is the thing. <laughs> My mind is, exactly. your mind was more powerful than her. She couldn't deal. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we had, we had this maid, and she came, and she would kind of pretend like she couldn't understand what I was asking her to do, which was total baloney. I mean, my French was not at that time that, that great, but I knew she understood me. And um, so my roommate said... Oh, no, no, you don't understand. And she actually talked like that sometimes to me, which didn't help. <laughs> you don't understand. You know, this woman is, um, she's just doing the best that she can. And you can't ask, you can't, I think she may have even used the phrase, these people. You can't ask these people to do this. Uh, so I said to her, actually, and, and it was a little complicated because I, I'm black and she was white. I said, actually... Margo, I think that that's a very racist idea. Um, you know, I, I said, if she were white, would you be saying that I couldn't expect for her to do actually, you know, what we've hired her to do? Like, are you serious? Like, I'm not, we're not giving her charity. I mean, in fact, you have said we should hire her to contribute to the local economy. Right. Like, that's very different, you know? And so it just, it just turned into this big frouhaha and, she, she had accused me of, um, you know, what's really funny is she, she accused me of being, um, she, she would accuse me in all these various ways of not helping along the African economy. One big, big fight we had was that I bought bottled water because, you know, that's what was recommended. I mean, I'm not going to go against that. I bought bottled water. She drank the tap. After I moved out, I saw her elsewhere and she was so sick like she was <laughs> she was on cipro she was so oh, ill God, you know yeah, yeah yeah like what the hell like you like she was <laughs> she was trying to make a statement by drinking contaminated water exactly exactly uh, and um you know and i and i i saw her a, a few years later and she had i if you if you contract a parasite there are in some ways you you affect yourself permanently um you know what i mean and and i could tell when i saw her that that's that's kind of what had happened so you know i just i couldn't deal with that um and and i think you know i i mean i i think too everybody when you go abroad right you have your own experience of the place right. um everybody has their own experience of a place and so I don't, I'm, I'm not a big fan of telling people how they need to experience a culture. Yeah. Right? That's insufferable. Don't you think? And so Isn't I, it? And, and, Isn't and, it? and I'm imagining she is now a uh, congresswoman from the state of somewhere. Is that? <laughs> she, she actually works in development. Oh, okay. So she, she's still, she's still performing her cross-cultural work. Okay. <laughs> So were you were you conceiving of a novel? Were you conceiving of yourself? Because Fulbright was pre Iowa, no, or was it post Iowa? It was post Iowa. Post Iowa. Post Iowa. So, so you um, were you were you were like identifying as a writer of fiction, at least mentally at this point, right? Exactly. By then, I think I had crossed over. Um, I started this novel um, while I was there. It was about a young woman who has HIV. 
Um, and the the big question of the novel was whether she she was a Peace Corps volunteer. She she had HIV, and the big question was whether she would return to the United States. I sent it around. I had I got an agent. I was lucky enough to get an agent. She sent it around. Everybody said this is so grim. This is horrible. We could never sell this. Um, which you know, looking back, it was totally grim. It was very political. It was very there was no no air in it whatsoever. Um, very grim. So, although I think the novel I wrote, the, the novel that just came out, I think it's pretty grim. <laughs> You're like, um, there's barely, any, <laughs> there's barely any oxygen in that one either. There isn't. <laughs> but I think one of the characters is is really funny. So maybe that's that's what saves it from being like, you know, completely headache inducing. I well, don't know. It's hard, you know, it's hard to deal with dramatic situations and heavy situations, but to let in enough light to, you know, striking the right tonal balance is, is something I always struggle with because uh, uh-huh. I think, uh-huh. you know, life is heavy. Life is difficult. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of uh, stresses and unhappiness and, you know, people suffer. And so to, re- you know, to make art that doesn't reflect that would be dishonest, but you know, life is also funny and absurd and beautiful and ridiculous. And so, I, you know, trying to find a way to meld those two things is sort of the task. And it's not always mm-hmm. easy, you know. What, now, what are you working on now? Uh, are, you, uh, are you doing funny? Are you doing... Do you have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> and do you mind if I lie down? Uh, just like on my couch. <laughs> Is uh, it leather? Yeah, I just, I need like a shrink's couch and like a pacifier or something. <laughs> But uh, basically, it's uh, it's a memoir, I think. Oh. And is that hard? Is it very? It must be very it is, difficult. It is, and I'm trying to dredge all this stuff, like all these like big deaths that I've experienced in my life, and like you know talking about how death informs identity and how you know how there's kind of a symbiosis between death and life, and like how we figure out who we are. But it's like, how do you uh-huh. how do you talk about all that stuff without depressing everybody? I don't want to be, you know, I want there to be some laughs in there, I mean, even if they're dark laughs, you know. And so right. it's just just trying right. it's it's trying to, I think, uh, like the process of writing it feels like trying to string a tightrope at elevation from pole to pole and then trying to walk across it. It's like the whole thing, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. Is that a decent metaphor? Like that's what I'm in the process yeah. of doing. And I don't know if it's going to work, yeah. you know. I don't know if it's going to work, but... I will say that writing it is painful. My God, you know, like it's hard for is it me. Painful? Is it painful because of the what you're writing about, or is it painful because you just don't? It's difficult to say these things on the paper. Both, both. I think it's both. It's just like it's painful stuff, and you're trying to render it, and you know, I I, I have to find a way to um, bring some air in. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. you have to, and I have to find a way to make the, the, you know, there has to be some funny in there. That's just me. Like I have to find a way to do that. Um, and it's, it's tricky because you don't want the humor to undercut the genuine pathos involved and you don't want the, mm-hmm. path, you don't want the pathos to, uh, you know, to overwhelm everything and, and make all the jokes feel like flat or out of place. So it's a balancing act, you know, it's really difficult to strike the right, right, the right tone. And there can be, there can be these kinds of, uh, contrasts or tensions uh, between any number of things, you know, in a work of art. And I feel like, you know, that's the game is trying to make sure that you string things together so that those tensions feel right and they provide proper counterweight to one another. Yes. So So, may I ask, are you telling like what the, what the memoir, 
what it mostly touches on, or are you is that a secret in your creative process right now? <laughs> well, it's kind of tricky because it involves like uh, parenthood, childbirth, the possibility of wanting a second child, but like trying to balance like how I feel about climate change and like what kind of world I'd be bringing a child into. Like that's a big question. Mm-hmm. That's a big question at the heart of it. Like, is it like responsible? to, uh, you know, bring children into a world that's so messed up, which I think a lot of parents mm-hmm. feel. And I think a lot of parents have felt that, you know, going back through the eons. Um, mm-hmm. But the, mm-hmm. I think that the concern feels especially acute to me now because I, it seems to me anyway that, like, what we're up against is unprecedented, you know, in terms of its, yeah. imme- its immediacy and, like, the scope of what could happen. And so, you know, yeah. that, that's the fun stuff that it's about. So. So try making yeah. that, try making that funny. You know? <laughs> like well, you know what? If you don't have anything lighthearted to say, come sit by me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to play some piano for me. I just want to lie down. I want to lie down. I want to lie down amid the piles in your apartment. Amid the. <laughs> just play a sad piano song for me. While well, something crawls yes. out from under the piles <laughs> and over your body. Yes. yes. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> So, um, let's, you know, before I let you go, like talk about, uh, you know, finishing, like you get back from, um, Africa, you, uh, do this fellowship year at the university of Wisconsin, Madison. Like when did, Mm -hmm. when did the bulk of the writing get done? Um, well, actually, I okay. So, I this this novel, interestingly enough, grew out of a short story I wrote while I was at Wisconsin. But it didn't come back to me in its present form for many years. So I started it, and I mark I mark this in terms of my kids' ages. Actually, um, I started it when my older kid was three. And the book at that point was very much about these characters wanting to leave home so bad and and the idea of their ambitions being thwarted in various ways and and also about the heartbreak of, you know, what happens when you leave home and you find out that your dreams are going to get crushed anyway. (laughs) Um, It's very much about that. And then what happened is... um, I had, um, I actually, I, I, you know, if you do the math on this, it's interesting. So I, I, I had filed for divorce, and then I got pregnant from the person, you know, with the person I was filing from divorce from. Um, I became a, in both, in, with both kids, I had become a single mother effectively almost instantly because he lived elsewhere, and that was kind of when I felt for the first time in my life what sexism was because suddenly there was a top of the layer of me being a woman and even a black woman, you know, there's an intersection there, but then I was a single mother. And then after I got divorced and I was really a single mother of two children, that's when I felt the most, the kind of, you know, I I felt like I was just flinching from these definitions, these very gender-based definitions people had of me. Um, you know, I, I mean, even little things like someone told me that I should find some guy to teach my kid how to ride a bike. I was like, don't you think I can do that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm capable of that, you know? Right. Um, and so the book totally changed after, and I finished it when, right after I had the second kid, um, like, no, I'm sorry, right before... The week before, actually, I gave birth to the second child, I finished this book and sent it to my agent. So it went through a lot of change. The editorial process kind of corresponded to my 
my second kid being like an infant and then a toddler, um, you know. And so now she's four and a half, so the book is finally finished. But a lot of the a lot of the editorial change I mean, my editor, she's like this mystical guru of editing because all she would do is she would ask me a question. Uh, or she would send me an email and it would have maybe two questions or three questions. And one of those questions would generate like a hundred pages worth of changes. You know, I'd be like, yeah, I can see your point, you know, because wow. they weren't really questions. They were phrased as questions, yeah. but they were really orders. That <laughs> sounds perfect. It sounds so like I would do that. Yeah. That's like, uh, that's, she was awesome. that's genius. You know, but that's like, I think, I think that's, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that, you know, phrasing things interrogatively instead of like giving somebody marching orders or issuing it as like declarative criticism, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, we worked really well together because that's what she did. Um, so it's a, it's an altogether different book now for that process and also for what I think, you know, all my personal um, change. Um, and now I think it's very much a book about, although uh, the reviews – you know, 10% of the reviews have said this, but um, I think it's a book about the ways in which women are constrained no matter what. When one girl stays in Kentucky, one girl goes to New York, and they still run up against all this sexism and, and you know, this, this idea of how you are defined by your gender. Um, and and it's said in 19, the late 50s, but I think it's just as true in 2014, like, Definitely. Well, on that um, on that encouraging note, we will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but in in all seriousness, it's been really fun talking with you. I've enjoyed this, and I uh, I congratulate you on the, the you know the publication of this book, and I wish you well on uh, the one thanks. about Morocco. And now you've got me thinking that I need to go to Morocco. So thanks for that. You do, you do, Brad. And thank you. This has been the best interview ever. This is so much fun. Thank you for having me on the nervous. But, uh, yes, thank you. Okay, it's called Other People. <laughs> but <laughs> Thank you for having me on Other People. Yeah, but The Nervous Breakdown is a, is a website. So you got it, you got it. You got the general, you got, okay. the, you got my uh, literary ecosystem. <laughs> All right, good talking with you. You too, Brad. Bye-bye. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Jacinda Townsend. Go get her novel. It's called Saint Monkey, and it's out there from W.W. Uh, w. Norton and Company. You can find Jacinda online at jacindatownsend.com she's on twitter she's on facebook uh, track her down befriend her retweet her and what have you thanks to kill rock stars and uh, the band stereo total as always uh, for the good music stereo total does the theme song music this music not by stereo total i could tell you the band but i have to go look it up so just check out killrockstars.com and uh, don't forget about the app the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the very best way to listen to this program and to access the full archives. So here is uh, how it works. You go get the app. You should do that. I really mean that. Get the app. The app is free. And then once you have the app, you get the most uh, recent 50 episodes free of charge. They'll be there waiting for you, free of charge. Uh, And then from there, if you would like to access everything, the other 200 and something episodes, uh, all you have to do is sign up for premium. It's only $2 a month or uh, 5 bucks for six months of access or $9 for a full year um, subscription, essentially. So uh, once you're signed up for premium, you have access to every single episode of this podcast, including 
my conversations with authors like Susan Orlean, Cheryl Strait, Edward Dantica, Tao Lin, uh, Jonathan Lethem, Tom Parada, Ben Fountain, Sheila Hetty, you name it. And you can sign up, uh, you know, for premium right there in the app. So you get the app, the app is free, and then right there within the app, you sign up for premium and uh, you support this program. So please do that. I would greatly appreciate it. And uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I'm doing the best I can as a parent, trying to set a good example, you know. I got to get unafraid of death. That's what I keep telling myself. I'm working hard to uh, keep my shit together and make peace with uh, mortality, the, the difficulties of life, the finality, not the finality. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't believe in the finality. I think things do go on somehow. Um, but the point is that I want to be, uh, together mentally, emotionally, psycho spiritual, uh, psycho spiritually, so that I can then transfer that to my daughter. I don't want to be all skittish in front of her, uh, when it comes to this stuff. That's what I'm saying. Because, you know, I'm of the belief that what I do is way more important than what I say when it comes to fatherhood. Uh, you know, most of what I say, she's going to forget. Uh, or when she gets older, she'll just ignore me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the power of uh, example, of leading by example, seems to me to be the better way to go. It leaves a stronger impression. That's my feeling right now, anyway. Please remember that Montesquieu died of pneumonia and that Flaubert once said, quote, hatred of the bourgeois is the beginning of all virtue. That's it for now. Thanks again to Jacinda Townsend. Go get her novel. And uh, thanks to you for listening. I appreciate that. I'll be back on Wednesday with another episode. Uh, until then, stay strong. <laughs> stay positive. Let's do that. Let's stay positive. Uh, all the news is bad. Everybody knows that. You turn on the news, the news is bad. You read the news, the news is bad. Let's stay positive anyway. You want to subvert the dominant paradigm? Stay positive. You want to carve out some space for yourself in a culture dominated by doomsayers and shoegazers who anesthetize themselves with uh, the internet and alcohol, tobacco, and prescription painkillers? Stay positive. And, you know, <laughs> once again, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I like this part of the show, despite what I say, despite my tone. I like flailing in public for you. I don't care if it's painful or humiliating. This, uh, this closing moment where I try to think of some way to close. I'll take that pain for you. I will sacrifice myself. I just want you to smile right now. Smile. Smile. <laughs>